Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Hi. Thanks for including my treat in there.
Well, thank you for having us. Um, this is a result of a wonderful exchange program we have now started. We had Hannah come and, and speak to our um, psychology for policy class that we teach at the Woodrow Wilson School last year. Um, we're going to split the presentation. This is truly just a most delightful collaborative work um, that Anna started when she came to the uh, psychology department where I sit last year and said, um, I know you've been working on gender-based violence and gender violence. Um, let's do something about sexual assault on college campuses. And I described that as like a moment in which I like really gulped because I thought, oh god, you're here for two years. How are we ever going to even make inroads? Um, but here we are a, a year and a half later. Um, uh, we certainly didn't anticipate the momentum that would suddenly catch us um, uh, as we um, started doing this last fall. Um, but it's extremely exciting to have all of the interest that, um, that has been generated or around this research. So um, these are our first inroads, so uh, we really welcome feedback at this point. And, and actually, this is the first time that we've presented uh, all of these data. So, uh, so especially now is when we would really love to hear from you. Um, we, both, uh, we are both going to present. We're just going to split the um, presentation in half. So I'll, I'll start off, and, and Anna will finish off. And please ask questions. Um, so, so we thought we'd start off by, by talking, giving you a little bit of background on policy. I know this is a really heterogeneous audience, and so um, uh, just to provide some, some background on policy, and then uh, we've been interested in the marketplace of ideas uh, for policy about sexual assault and why particular ideas seem to appeal. Um, we've been interested in replacing some of those ideas with ideas that are informed by a more social psychological model. So uh, this is where I need to advertise. We're behavioral scientists, we're social psychologists, so we think about context and we think about people in the context and the interaction between the two. Um, so we've been doing a lot of thinking about what models could replace uh, the, the, the current models um, that are informing um, interventions, and then uh, we've also done some empirical research on um, a student-driven intervention, and so that's how we'll end. Um, so, so we are in the Me Too moment, um, and uh, one thing that's very interesting about studying campus sexual assault is that we've been rehearsing for these discussions about the workplace and about um, Hollywood on campuses for a long time, and so probably you've been thinking about this as well. Um, both in terms of the discovery of prevalence, so surveys um, that were repeated showing, and it, it, this estimate keeps stabilizing and keeps showing up that it's about one in five, over one in five um, uh, people, and in particularly women who are, are reporting an experience of sexual assault. Um, and also discussions about what is the right punishment, and then, uh, and then what is the right intervention. And a lot of these discussions were also fueled by controversies, um, so uh, Steubenville in 2012, which was not actually on a college campus, but um, started discussions about um, young people and rape and consent and social media. Um, and then also uh, disasters, such as the Rolling Stone um, article that was published in which later it was found that um, not all of this was, um, was accurate. Um, and so this is really also drawn in this whole controversy about the legitimacy of survivor accounts. And so this has been bubbling on college campuses. This is not new. This is not something that the Me Too movement started. Um, so what happened then is that because of all of this um, discussion and controversy, this culminated in the, in the White House uh, publishing a report in 2014 called Not Alone. 
uh, not alone asserted the prevalence numbers, uh, reasserted what has been being found about more than one in five um, uh, people reporting. Um, it called for measurement on college campuses and, um, and in fact, following this report, a lot of uh, universities have instituted a, a, a yearly um, prevalence survey on their campuses and a lot of discussion about how to standardize that, what numbers produce more versus less reporting. Also really interestingly, and, and this is where our research is going to start to take off, um, they recommended, this report recommended bystander intervention. So just to like get a sense of the room, how many people know what bystander intervention is? How many people have been trained in a bystander intervention? Uh, keep your hand up if you're a student. Yeah, okay, so, um, so the, the report said, and let me tell you a little bit about bystander intervention in a second, but the report said very explicitly that they're providing schools with information about how to implement bystander interventions. And, and called it among the most promising um, prevention strategies. Um, and so a bystander intervention, if you haven't been a part of it, is a training to identify and respond to situations where sexual assault um, is or may be happening. So the idea is um, uh, recognize what types of people might be about to engage in sexual assault or um, what type of um, interaction you might be seeing in order to expect that uh, a sexual assault might be happening. It relies very much on students. Um, and when we looked at um, uh, sort of um, uh, some of these sites that, that collect all of um, the different kinds of trainings that are out there, we counted up that 93% of them um, included a bystander training component. So this is, a, this is the dominant model. Um, there are very few evaluations of whether or not this program is working. Um, as to be expected, very few of them, uh, even fewer of those evaluations are experimental, meaning that we have some sort of plausible counterfactual that tells us what would have happened in the absence of this program. And then on top of this, most of them examine attitudes following the training, that we don't have actual behaviors that are, that are being tracked as a result, um, or self-reported behaviors, right? Um, this is, of course, a problem that's going to plague all research um, in this respect, is that it's very hard to track actual behavior. So I'll, I'll acknowledge that um, for sure. But so, so the question is, where did this bystander intervention come from? Um, it, it, it started a very long time ago with um, theorists who were interested in this ecological model of, of sexual assault, which I could broadly describe as um, a model that takes into account everything from the big, big societal um, issues of um, uh, dominant cultural narratives and ideologies, down to sort of meso-level factors, such as what is this particular institution that you're in, down to uh, very personal individual factors, what are your beliefs, what's your personal experience, and so forth. And, and these scholars thought, well, this is such an enormous problem, we see it at every single one of these levels in the ecology, that um, it makes sense that everybody should participate in a solution. And so bystander training was one of many proposed by this ecological model. But more recently, and this is where we start to get a little perplexed, it's been propelled by a, a particular um, uh, advocate named David Lezak, um, who is a, a vocal proponent of, of what he's called the serial rapist model. Um, and this is a very different model than the ecological model, and it's a model that has um, uh, been featured prominently in uh, reports like the White House Not Alone uh, report. 
And um, the idea behind this, this model is that there are a small number of students who are responsible for the vast majority of, of sexual assault on campus. Um, it's based on one study, um, it's a, which was a cross-sectional self-report survey. Um, if you read the methods, it, it's um, reporting that the people who participated in the study were aged uh, 17, 18 to 71. Um, in this survey, 6% um, of respondents acknowledged that they had attempted um, or completed, this is language used by the, uh, the authors, completed rape. Um, and some back of the envelope calculations, because of the number of times some of those people admitted to acts of, of rape, um, adding up those number of times, um, it was calculated that this small 6% uh, uh, were uh, responsible for 91% of all um, acts uh, uh, collected in the survey, okay? So, um, and, and what you see, if you, if you read the paper, there's, there's a, a bar chart where um, the frequency of men reporting some act of rape is, is very high. Um, many men are reporting one act, and it goes down in U-shape, and then um, what they really focus on in this paper is uh, the number of men uh, who report um, a very extremely high number of acts, okay? And so that part of the graph is zoomed in on, and um, the analysis goes that uh, these are the serial rapists on campus um, who plan and premeditate their attacks, um, and they're, they're compared to um, a rather abnormal or clinical uh, part of the population who score um, you know, standard deviations lower on um, uh, measures of empathy, um, on hostility towards women, standard deviations higher than the average population. And so the conclusion that Lizak and, and colleagues have drawn is that rather than focusing prevention efforts on these rapists who are abnormal, hard to detect, um, and a very uh, small minority of the population, it's far more effective to focus efforts on uh, the more numerous bystanders, okay? And so um, this is why bystander training has been such a strong recommendation coming out of this model. Um, there's been a lot of critiques of this study. I'll mention a few. Um, one is that it's a, actually a cross-sectional study that includes community members, so um, it purports to be about campus sexual assault, but actually does not sample necessarily from uh, campus members. Um, uh, the respondents were encouraged to report rapes before they got to college, and so this, this accumulative number um, includes events uh, prior to that time period. Um, there's a lot of um, measurement questions in there, such as um, are the acts that are being reported all part of one incident? Um, uh, that's not accounted for. The acts are simply added up as a sum uh, and taken to be separate acts. So um, you do have men in that survey reporting 50 what sounds like rapes, but it's unclear what what is actually happening there. If there are. Um, another interesting um, aspect of this is that um, there are, of course, um, questions about, you know, are these different victims or is this a relationship in which assault is happening within a relationship over time? And that's also um, something to be uh, enormously concerned about, but also differs from how it's being portrayed as a series of, uh, as a serial um, uh, rapist model. Um, so these are some of the critiques that have been brought up, not by us, but um, by scholars who have been doing the hard work of prevalence estimation uh, for a very long time. 
Um, and some of these uh, folks have been publishing data um, since that, that survey. And two recent uh, large sample and longitudinal analyses, not one cross-sectional, um, find that twice as many men um, are actually reporting rape in their samples compared to this initial sample um, proposing the serial rapist model. Um, and, and they're reporting fewer occasions as well, all right? Um, there are still, and, and we would never dispute the idea that there is a, you know, a serial rapist um, um, uh, model to contend with, um, but actually um, the data are contradicting the idea that there are many serial perpetrators. So they are able to look at trajectories over time among those people who are reporting um, more than one incident. And it does not seem um, what you would look for in a serial perpetrator would be a steady state, whereas it seems like there are developmental trajectories where um, some men are reporting um, some before college and in, the, in their early years of college, and then that behavior is dying off, or that behavior is increasing, and you can um, theorize about why that might be, particular uh, social institutions are driving on campus, et cetera, right? But that does not conform to what you would think of as evidence for a serial uh, perpetrator. Uh, which is a, a you know a very well developed idea of chronology, for example. Um, so these scholars, um, on the other hand, scholars uh, like Kevin Swartout, Mary Koss, and others, uh, come to the conclusion that it appears to be premised on a single source. Although the serious serial rapist assumption is, is very widespread and taken as fact, um, and they caution against a single solution model, particularly a solution that would be based on that model, obviously. So our question is, um, you know, this is a model that has appealed from the beginning, um, and that seems to have some staying power. Now these data that I just presented were published in JAMA, one of the top medical journals, um, but still pretty recently, and anyone who studies policymaking knows that you know, research is generally used as a justification for pre-existing ideas rather than for you know, sea changes in policy that takes a lot of time to build up over time, right? So, with a huge dose of realism about how policy has changed, we also want to know why did this appeal so much from the from the get-go, right? Based on this one study um, that has so many obvious critiques attached to it. Um, um, and we should note that you know uh, Dave Lisak, you know, who was recently here on campus uh, to talk about the serial. Um, rapist model and to guide a lot of programming on this campus and also ours. He was just recently at our campus. Uh, uh, you know, this is consequential not just in the scholarly discourse um, and, uh, you know, this, this has had very concrete um, ramifications for how universities are investing in solutions to this issue. Um, so I think that, you know, we could make this concrete in, in terms of two questions. Why did one study determine the course of policy and dialogue, and why is it now sur surviving discrediting uh, and, and new and contradictory evidence? Um, so as psychologists, uh, let's think about what the serial rapist model communicates to us, right? Um, it clearly defines good and bad people. Uh, it provides a very simple story of justice, who's a villain, whose behavior needs to change. Um, actually not talking about the villain's behavior even, but rather, you know, who, who should adjust their, their behavior around these perpetrators to keep one another safe. 
Uh, it impugns certain people, and those people are, are deemed abnormal, as opposed to you know thinking through this long history we have in, in psychology of thinking about the banality of evil and how um, institutions and social settings encourage us to participate in evil acts even when we particularly are not um, predisposed necessarily. Um, so in that way, it avoids problematizing, problematizing human nature itself, which you know, psych psychologists love to do. Um, <laughs> Uh, we're very ready to, um, but it also preserves a faith in and, and a legitimacy in the broader system. Right? Okay. Um, so uh, we'll sum it up this way: the serial rapist model we think appeals because people prefer to see the world as good and just, uh, and prefer simple stories. Yeah. So is this a specific example of kind of the bad apple theory of what goes wrong in ethical behavior? I think this is a beautiful example of that. And um, you'll see in our methods that we actually use that language <coughs> in order to communicate this in our studies. Um, so yeah, I think so. And and so um, one reason why this is, thank you, that's such a good intervention here, is that it, it's important to pause here and say um, that this appeals to all of us, uh, because we all have a need uh, to see the world as, as just, um, and uh, we all have a need to simplify the world around us. Um, this is a basic human need. It's um, destabilizing to walk around believing that the world isn't just all the time, um, uh, which some of us might feel like we can relate to in this moment. <laughs> um, and, um, and yet, as psychologists, we know that actually some people, there are individual differences in this need. So some people have a greater need to see the world as, as just and, and a greater need to simplify um, and come to stories with some closure on them. So we can take advantage of this fact in order to test this hypothesis that we have, because otherwise it's it's a bit of a truism. Um, yeah. So even if I believe that only six percent are are being raped, there's so many other forms of harassment. This doesn't hide it. So um, the questionnaires that they're um, uh, using to measure prevalence here are about unwanted sexual contacts. Oh. Um, and so serial uh, rapist model is a label that's been used for that, but it, uh, the prevalence you know, measurements are actually a little bit broader than that. Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, they have stuck to, however, especially studies that have followed up on the serial rapist model, have stuck quite closely to say FBI, not say, but specifically FBI definitions of what um, sexual assaults are in order to tie this more directly to policy concerns about uh, prosecutable offenses and, and so forth. Um, you could certainly broaden this out, though, to talk about a wider range of acts. And I don't think anyone who's doing this research right now would say these are the only things that we're concerned about. But they're you know, trying to address this um, distinction that is being made, this model that's being made by, by measuring it that way. Just a quick question about the context. In these prevalence surveys of sexual assault, is there any percentage of, should we be thinking of men as always the perpetrators and women as the victims, or is there any percentage of the opposite? There is. Um, it's a useful heuristic, though, to think about men and women. Um, it's men who are targeted by these surveys because um, people are trying to understand prevalence, perpetration rates among men. Um, but we know from Canada's climate surveys, from lots of public health surveys, that men are also victimized and um, you know that it, it's not a simple story at all. But I think that here it's 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 safe to to think about that as the heuristic. Yeah. Also, how does the survey deal with the fact that 
the people, the respondents might not have, be aware of the fact that they committed these crimes. Is there any surrounding literature? Um, just from my experience back in college, like there are things that there might be disagreement over whether or not, okay, you're going to get to this. It just, well, it does not deal just, with it. So okay. you should think about the one in five estimate as one in which we're completely relying upon um, uh, the respondent's definition of doing something without the person's consent. So that is the way that it is. Right. And then it's easy to rationalize to yourself, like I didn't do that, and Correct. so this has to be like a and it so might everybody be, can bound however they want. Yeah. And it might be particularly the kinds of perpetrators who don't really understand it who would not fit into this model. Right. Yeah. Is there a difference between the bad apple model and a model in which people are just unable to see sort of systematic issues in general? So thinking about the idea of there being, you know, systematic sexism discrimination versus a few bad apples that are perpetuating this. It just seems like you don't have to necessarily rely that the world is a good and just place to still be kind of hard to see an entire system that systematizes sort of these things happening. So I don't know if there's like a difference there or like does that matter for like how you're thinking about why this model is so popular. So, um I think I'm unclear on your question in terms of whether it's the, that the, can the model allow for that or, can, can you elaborate just a little bit more on that? Yeah. So I guess thinking about the justification why people like this so much. So I think, you know, when we talk about people recognizing racism, you can either say that there are a few bad apples or that there is a system of racism that's put in place, right. but that system is really hard to see. Right. And so to the extent to which that, you know, it's really difficult to see and this is really easy to see, people gravitate towards it, but it's not because they want to see the world as good or just, it's just that this broader system is really hard. And given that race, excuse me, gender in particular, like we allow for, you know, girls and boys to line up, but if we said, you know, whites and blacks to line up, it's like, cool, that's a big problem. Like we also just see gender as such a fundamental thing that there's seems to be more of an allowance for gender differences and gender systems put in place that just aren't seen as wrong. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I guess I'm questioning this like, a system justification versus literally not seeing the problem. Right, Ooh. right. I think that's an, an immensely important factor. And I wouldn't, we wouldn't claim to say that this um, need to see the world as a good and just place is going to count for all of the variants. Um, our claim is that it accounts for um, a good amount. And so you can evaluate that for yourself because now we have some variants accounted for. But yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think, you know, um, Maybe that also relates back to this idea of we prefer simple stories because it's a complex task to to think systemically, and and it's not a simple story. And so I think that might be in part the the preference, right? Is that um, engaging with a story about um, systemic racism or uh, you know a system uh, that perpetuates misogyny and um, and inequality is, is very difficult to grasp and explain. So. Um, okay, so these are the things that we actually measured um, on an individual uh, level. So uh, psychologists um, have devised scales uh, to measure things like essentialism. Do you think that um, uh, there are inherent essences that, um, uh, that uh, delineate 
who is male, who is female, or, or, or just simply different categories in the world? Are you more likely to, to believe in that? Um, are you a thinker who really needs closure and, um, and uh, separation among different concepts? Um, are you a person who, who more than average wants to believe in, in uh, the justice of the world? Um, are you, uh, do you have a tendency to justify the system, the status quo as it is, uh, in particular with respect to gender relations? Um, and then are you the type of person who sees hierarchy as a useful and good thing? These are essentially the lay you know, explanations for what all of these different scales are measuring. Um, and so our, our methods um, were to um, evaluate people along a range of all of these things. We actually included other individual difference measures, you know, so that um, it wasn't simply repeating along the same theme and, and um, alerting people to what we were interested in. We were also interested in making sure that other things did not relate to what we were um, uh, about to measure in terms of discriminant validity. Um, and then what we did is we explained to people what the serial rapist model was by calling it the bad apples model. It's very um, easy to grasp. Um, and this is just simply a, um, you know, a, a printout of, of basically what we were presenting to people in an online study, um, and uh, and ended by saying, you know, this small group of serial rapists can be distinguished from the majority of men on campuses who are not involved in sexual assaults. Okay, and I'm just going to show you all of our findings, uh, which uh, are represented <coughs> up here, and. Um, what, what you're seeing here is uh, a pretty significant amount of variance being accounted for um, <coughs> in terms of, on the y-axis, this is um, your endorsement of the serial rapist model, saying I, I think that this is likely to be a, a very good explanation uh, for uh, campus-based sexual assault. And then these are the correlations between that and as you go higher in your need for closure um, and your tendency to essentialize different social categories, and your desire to justify the system and particularly gender relations. And so the effect size to characterize it is um, about a half step on average in the scale of endorsement. So um, moving up one on um, a scale of, say, uh, uh, your need for justice uh, results in a half step up on, I think, that um, the serial rapist model is, is um, a, an accurate one to describe. We can control for all types of things about whether these online folks were currently in college, uh, male or female, and these um, and these predictions hold. We can put them all in the same regression model, and they're still explaining variance um, to a significant degree. Um, it's just a pretty strong and regular finding. Um, and so what we wanted to end on here, just in terms of addressing this, uh, this marketplace of ideas uh, question, is that you know we think that the serial rapist model has psychological appeal. Um, uh, even though the data indicate that there are multiple types of perpetrators, this is actually a new paper now that's out that's not just measuring prevalence, but actually showing that there are different um, types of, um, of, of men in particular who engage in sexual assault, that it's not all about um, uh, you know, one type of setting and, and one type of assault. Um, and that, indeed, perpetration is much more widespread according to these newer data collections than the serial rapist model um, uh, is, is communicating. Um, so then the question is, what kind of model do we need to replace the serial rapist model? And so this is something that we've been working on, and I'm going to hand it over to Emma at this point. Yeah, thank you. So uh, now I get the fun, <laughs> the like, genuinely fun task of um, walking you guys through 
the approach that we'd like to share with you that we take. Um, this is a behavioral science approach. What that means is that when we think about behavior, um, we analyze it in terms of behavior as a product of a person's perception of their current environment. There are two key pieces here. This is how a person is understanding or perceiving or interpreting their environment. And when we think about environment, we really mean like local, immediate, current context. So uh, in comparison to the models that we were, that Betsy was just talking about, we're really de-emphasizing people's personal characteristics and also sort of external, larger reward structures. We're really thinking about people in the moment in their immediate situation. Um, and so to sort of further help us dig into this behavioral science approach, we're just gonna get essentially more and more concrete until I tell you about a field experiment that Betsy and I and our colleagues did um, to really show you the value of thinking in this way about sexual assault on campus. So as we um, try to analyze both people's perception, what's going on in their head and their context, um, when we think about people um, and how they're understanding their situation, we want to think about the kinds of expectations that they have for a given situation. What kind of behaviors might you expect from other people at a party versus in the library? Uh, what kind of scripts they have for how they might expect a certain event to unfold, like a date, um, as well as their perception of what other people are doing. So am I acting like a typical peer um, in addition to their individual goals and habits and values? Um, and when we think about what kind of factors um, in the context that we might want to focus on, these are things like the types of social spaces that students have to interact in. Um, do they have common spaces? Do they only have bedrooms to hang out in? Um, we'll get into that more deeply in a second. Um, thinking about um, whether or not people are in historically male institutions. Uh, we also think about geographical configuration. So this is stuff like, how far is my home from this party? Can I get back by myself? Um, as well as information embedded into context, like whether or not there's information about how to hop on a bus or where the health center is, like that. So now I'm gonna show you um, more spelled out different um, aspects to think about for both the person and the situation in our behavioral science model. I'm not gonna touch on every single dash here, so if something catches your eye, make a note, happy to answer questions, especially in the Q&A, to go into these more, well, more elaborately. Um, so first we're gonna talk about some of the features of a person to consider. Um, as I do this, um, as Betsy already mentioned, I'll be talking about um, men and women, recognizing that this is um, a common but not singular configuration for this um, topic. Um, and also, as we're talking about features of a person, we're gonna be jumping back and forth between thinking about what's in the mind of a male and what's in the mind of a female, um, <laughs> highlighting that sometimes people are perceiving the situation in the same way, but sometimes their perceptions diverge, right? It's important to think about both of those. Um, so when we're thinking about um, what kind of norms um, people might be bringing to the table, um, people have different perceptions about how common sex and casual sex is on campus, right? They might actually be overestimating that. And people tend to want to match their behavior with their peers, right? To not be doing something totally out of the ordinary. Um, also want to think about the kinds of goals that people have. Um, so students tend to want to have the right kind of college experiences. I can imagine that um, women might have goals to be polite when they're interacting with men. So if you want to turn someone down, for example, you want to do so in a polite way, maybe help you keep the friendship, make sure things don't escalate further or introduce force. Um, and I also want to talk about um, something interesting about goals more generally. So often when we select what goals to pursue or just what to do in our environment, 
we're weighing both how desirable that end state would be, so how good it would be if I actually achieved this, and also how feasible it is. So how, how likely am I to do it? What kind of obstacles are in my way? And usually we take both the desirability and the feasibility into account, but other factors are in our environment, specifically alcohol and also power, can make people overemphasize the desirability and start to lose sight of factors that might make you say, oh no, I shouldn't pursue this anymore. Um, when we're thinking about features of persons to consider, of course, we need to think about how we perceive each other. So specifically, what kind of expectations and stereotypes we might have about a partner of same or different races, ethnicity, social class, etc. Um, and finally, I think uh, it's also important to consider what kinds of moral reasons or moral calculations people are doing. So you can imagine, um, for example, a man behaving chivalrously all night and then feeling kind of licensed to behave not so chivalrously later, having sort of um, puffed up his perception of himself. Um, so now, um, also wanted to highlight the way that these different things going on in our minds are of course changing from situation to situation. So uh, I briefly alluded to geographical configurations, um, thinking about the kinds of student spaces that students have to interact. So um, thinking about whether or not there's a common space for students to hang out, or if they want to keep hanging out after a party, is the only room that they have a room with just a bed, right? So that they want this to sit. Um, we've also talked with student groups. Um, one thing that really stuck out is that students mentioned that in their dorms, the doors just shut automatically. And so when you come home, it just looks like you're coming home to a long hallway full of closed doors, like there's no one around. Um, when we think about the situation, it's also important to think about how it affords power to some people over others. So thinking about being someone who is part of the numerical majority in a room. Um, also thinking about being the person who has a list for a party, right? You get to control who comes in. Um, you could also be the person in charge of who's just allowed in that social group in general. Um, especially if it's one that has like a competitive selection process. Um, we can think about things like situational labels. Um, is a place labeled as a workspace or a party space? Um, themed parties um, and uh, informational cues, like I mentioned, um, directions to the health center, information about how to get on a bus that will take you home. Um, yeah. So I guess the information cues is the one that comes closest to how I perceive I'll be punished institutionally. But what you don't have on the person's side is that I might believe that I belong to a group that the institution doesn't really punish even if I do something wrong. Yes. So that's not there in your features for person. Yes, yes, yes. So that is an excellent point. This is certainly not meant to be an exhaustive list, and I hope it's more of a generative list than an exhaustive one. I think that the point you're making is excellent, right? People are getting information about whether or not they'll be punished. You could even imagine that that figures into a kind of feasibility calculation. Um, so I think there are lots of lots of places where that might fit in. It also fits into people's perceptions of what is normal on campus. Um, and so yes, this is certainly a thing where um, the broader climate is also influencing these things. I guess the reason I'm struggling because from a perspective of economist, you think of kind of punishment or whatever. So your sense of when you talk to people that sort of institution punishment is not at the forefront? Um, I wouldn't say that. Um, I think that students are very sensitive to punishment. Um, uh, I guess from my experience talking with students, um, would say that they're very afraid of punishment. Um, and so emphasizing that there is punishment would probably be good. 
um, and that, that that is just an area that we could potentially intervene on. Um, but because we're operating on this prevention side of the behavior, we don't have as much room to intervene on something like that. Yeah. I hear your point on this being generative, but one category that seems like an omission and fits into your behavioral science model is emotions and physiology. So things like mm -hmm. how drunk are you or are you on drugs and how are you feeling, including maybe even like sexual arousal, mm -hmm. potentially. How should we be thinking about emotions and physiology playing into the person and yeah. all stuff? Absolutely. Those are all great things to think about. Um, yeah, there's a lot there, or right? terrible. Well, I mean, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yes, those are all important things to think about, I should say. Um, um, there's evidence suggesting that sometimes people misattribute their arousal um, so that people are not quite understanding where their kind of feelings are coming from and they might mistakenly um, interpret them as sexual attraction when it might be something else like fear. Um, that's not really that relevant here, but it, it just kind of comes to mind. Um, let's see. Um, I guess my real answer is just yes. <laughs> and I hope that this will be something that is generative and that for all of us you can think about aspects of the situation and things that you would construe that are generative and good things to intervene on. Um, do you have anything to add? I think the only thing about drinking is that psychologists have really focused on how drinking makes you myopic. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think that uh, a lot of people have a lay model of like drinking um, releases all sorts of like you know, instincts and emotions and, and lots of different things. Um, psychologists have really focused on how drinking narrows your vision and makes you focused on one goal mm -hmm. and, and drops out the feasibility. So this is why we actually put myopia up there. We don't fe feature drinking as just a, a, a source, that we're actually interested in the psychology of what happens when you drink. And this is something that psychologists have really zeroed in on, that this is a big thing that happens. And so we can think about drinking as very closely related to goal pursuits. Mm -hmm. And, and how that changes goal pursuit for people. Um, and we were talking about this a little bit this morning in some of our meetings that, you know, um, it's interesting because it changes a little bit the way you think about this. You know, um, if you don't think you're going to reduce drinking on campus, you know, maybe what you should be thinking about is um, trying to talk about like what goals are present when people go into a situation in which there's going to be a lot of drinking if you know that uh, drinking will focus people on that goal. <clears throat> it seems like your model is very tied to the uh, experience of campus. And so I'm wondering, I mean, uh, rape and sexual assault happen in the student population all around the world and not necessarily in the campus setting. And I'm wondering to what extent these features are only relevant in the campus or not. I know it's the population trying to target the study, but uh, yeah, I would like to know how it can be like more. Yes, that's a great question. So. Um, we, it helps us to zero in on that campus situation because then we can get at this concrete level, but I would say that one level before, um, where we're just thinking about our approach in general, starting to think about these ideas like norms and expectations, there you can examine any environment and think about how these things might apply. So these general ideas, we're filling out with features that are specific to the campus environment, but you could certainly do this with almost any, any situation at all. Um, but I would definitely recommend from this perspective just to, to get as local as this, but just in a different setting um, because these low level features are really Because important. there's also this narrative that we hear that campus drives these behaviors, like, which I don't believe, I don't know, I, there's no evidence for that, but I'm wondering to what extent, like how do you present yourself with respect to this narrative? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, we're thinking about these low-level features not in comparison to other environments, but in comparison to ways that these kind of defaults could be changed. Like, could we give students a space that they could hang out in that isn't a bedroom? Um, yeah, I don't know. So um, don't really know exactly what how to compare campus environment. What would be like a fair comparison? Um, but I think that uh, it's it's good to have a kind of context that we can examine at this level. And I would just say that we think it's good. Knowledge, the prevalence rates don't differ so much um, across these campuses. Mm. So um, even though we would fill out these features differently, it's still resulting in about the same numbers. I don't want to super quick into that that I feel like I should have set up in the very, very intro, which is that um, uh, it's important to acknowledge that this is a behavioral science approach. And so in some sense, you know, behavioral science, as I understand it, is not a theory. So we're not going to come out with a theory of sexual assault at the end. That's too, to whatever campus. This is a method for you know seeking out in any one particular environment what are the norm scripts and you know these individual person um, factors and and how do they interact with what's going on at the context level. So in some ways, this is meant as a way to simply guide everyone's eye toward these particular things that we think are not being picked up on by other um, theories that are more clinical in nature or sociological in nature. So if that makes sense, I, you know, the, the table is presented not as a thing to memorize and, and to take with you, but as a way to guide the eye and, and to say, like, how, what would I look for in this particular setting? So, <laughs> so following on that concept, can I, can I still ask you a conceptual question? <laughs> So I'm trying to think about this from like a social psychological perspective and the interaction of the person and the situation and for instance this question about alcohol and goals or something like that. And I wonder, and to push back on me like on what I'm not seeing here, but I wonder if you almost have three columns. So you have like personal factors and then in the situational factors it seems like usually when I think about person in context from social psychology it's about characteristics of the social environment that cue one to see things differently. And then you have a bunch of things that almost seem like resources, like the physical, like the geographic environment that may be like relatively rich or relatively poor, right? So like, do you have an exit from the room? You know what I mean? Um, which may or may not influence your perceptions of the situation, but it's not necessarily gonna cue like social you know what I mean, social norms. I just wonder whether there's, maybe there were maybe, you know, multiple categories of situational factors. Because it seems like you were saying like whether or not the person is drunk, that seems like a situational factor to me that's gonna influence an individual factor. Um, and maybe that's different from the quality of lighting or the information about bus routes or I don't know whether, yeah. you know, any. So, yeah, I think um, that of these personal features, some of them are going to be more relevant in different situations than others. So if yeah. you can, for example, we are example about having an exit, that might, if you don't see one, that might really up your politeness goal, for example. Then you have to be really <laughs> careful, right, about what you do next. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But it might be that um, something like um, norms might not be coming online as much. 
Um, so these, they're kind of mix and match, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and maybe they're not separable. I mean, maybe, like, to your point, there it does give you a physical root, but then it also changes your perception of situations, so they're hard to disentangle. Yeah. Yeah, I just think geography is, like, an underappreciated uh, factor in how we actually construe a situation. Yeah. So I think, like, the fact that the room is dark means that someone turned the lights down. So someone had expectations for how this would go. And, and I think that, like, um, I'd love to see that more in... In, in our theorizing is to actually look at the physical um, uh, setup of spaces because uh, it really does communicate a lot. Like we were just so struck when we talked to the, you know, Anna already mentioned, we talked to these students who said like you, you feel like you're the only person in the dorm and there might be tons of people there, but because these heavy doors swing shut, it's just this long dark hallway and you feel isolated. Uh, and just imagine how like an architect could change that. You know, and I'm not saying that this is all we need, but it's just like, these are features that I think often go underappreciated, especially when you think that it's, it's, it's particular, you know, ideologies that are just carried around by people and, and, and those are just in play at all times. I think that the situations activate particular ideologies, bring out different selves. And I'm just wondering, you know, when, when women are go with a man to drink, first of all, if it is, if it is a family, a family or a husband, why did she go to drink with a man at an appropriate time? That is inviting. Plus, the way we dress up, the way we act, the way we really deal with men is truly dangerous now. Because we invite the way we dress, the way we talk, and then finally we accuse men. So I'm not an advocate for men or for women, I'm a mother, but it's truly it's good to be fair to each other and then. If we, do, we, we used to live in Dennis a long time ago, with men, mixed really. Nobody, nobody, we have no time for that thing. We are always competitive academically, and that is our goal, women, men, we, we just friend, but not that kind of violence. So we need to be careful so, to accusing men and, de and destroying their life too, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, I appreciate you bringing this up because I think that you're um, raising a point about, you know, how we define consent, right? And so, um, you know, are, are you saying, for example, that you think of consent as a signal that happens long, 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 long before the actual event um, of assault in which you are signaling something. Yeah. So, so you know, respectfully, I, I disagree. You know, I think that um, you know, consent is something that needs to be given before you know, in the you know, in the moments. And this is why we're particularly interested in analyzing these moments that you know. Um, you know, consent is not something that can be given long before the event happens, you know, and uh, we believe in, you know, I would assert that there's a right to withdraw consent. So, uh, for example, perhaps, you know, we can agree that, you know, a particular, you know, if we were to agree that a particular style of, of dress indicates consent, I think we could probably still both agree that um, a person could withdraw it at a later point, right, that they have a right to withdraw it. Um, and uh, so I think we also disagree on, on dress, but if we can agree on the idea that someone can withdraw it, then we still have this problem, right? Um, that there are 
uh, assaults that happen because it is not recognized that um, a person can, can withdraw consent. Do, do you see what I'm saying about that? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, more really, um, truthfully, we need to we respect each other. We need to live with each other. We don't want to really destroy the society by there are so much important things to do more than all this drinking and uh, all this kind of many, many acts. So, yeah, one literature we're not getting into here is all of the many ways in, in which survivors of sexual violence are prevented from doing these things uh, because of these occurrences, right? And so, um, you know, if our goal, and I share your goal, is of, you know, flourishing and productivity, you know, um, this is a, um, a violent and uh, traumatic event that has prevented the potential of so many people who have, who have experienced it. So I completely share your, your ultimate goal. Maybe, maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, um, but one thing that I'm not necessarily seeing explicitly on this table is the idea of consent and particularly how affirmative consent is conceived on campus and what that means. Um, I'm curious to know how you conceive these different ideas and why um, consent and affirmative consent is not on this table and how that was an aspect of your research. Yes, thank you so much for that perfect segue because now <laughs> I swear that was not planned. <laughs> thank you very much. Um, so what I want to do now is talk about how we can think about consent as a, as a person by situation product. So when we use these tools from the behavioral science model to try to analyze and understand consent, um, things we might want to think about are um, the scripts that people have when they initiate sex. So you can imagine students have all kinds of different scripts. They might have a dinner and a movie script. They might have a Netflix and chill script. They might have a get drunk and a party script, right? And these things are going to unfold really differently. This might really change their expectations of how you negotiate and give and receive consent in these different cases, right? People also of perceptions of how common casual sex is. This might change how they negotiate consent. Um, and as you're saying, um, expectations for how people communicate consent are really important, right? Are people expecting a verbal consent? Are they looking at non-verbals? Um, so these are all sort of person level in the head aspects of trying to understand consent as this person by situation product. These things are all gonna vary based on the context, right? Is this person in a committed relationship? Um, were they just in charge? Were they the host of the party? Um, were they actually on the outskirts of the party, like a friend of a friend of a friend? Um, are there other people nearby? Are they in a dorm where there's no one else around? All these kinds of things, right, play into this practice of negotiating consent. Um, and we, we got interested in thinking about um, how students think about consent, and in particular, um, whether can students think about consent as a value, or like as a moral value. Um, and if we think about wanting students to value consent, this leads us to this bigger psychological question of how does something become a moral value in the first place? Um, let me finish this rule and then I'll So um, when we think about how something becomes a moral value, um, talk about, um, think about the attitudes that people have. They exist on a spectrum uh, ranging from preferences, like I prefer chocolate to vanilla, um, to values, like um, take care of other people, don't tread on other people's freedom. Um, and so different social and psychological processes shape a preference into a value. Um, we can see evidence that an attitude is becoming more value-like 
when we see these other indicators, so uh, when, when uh, an idea is considered a value, uh, it tends to be more central to a person's identity, uh, more broadly shared. Um, the consequences of violating that value become more emotionally vivid. Um, violating that value seems, seems, or promoting that value seems to require action. Uh, you can now censure other people when they don't act in line with it. Um, and institutions have to support it. So all these things that um, kind of show us when people are thinking about something as a value also are a good case for why we might want consent to be considered one, right? These are all ways that we can try to promote consensual relationships. Um, yes? Yeah, so I, I think this is a really interesting model, this kind of like person time situation um, interaction. And I think it would be really interesting to kind of think of this even more as a matrix, right? Because you have the you have consent happening for two people, right? The person asking, which gender normatively is usually the man, um, and the person giving consent, which is the woman, and those are also interacting with each other in this situation. So it's it's just really interesting to think about this as an even more complex picture. And my question for you, I guess, is are you thinking about this more, um, this situation X person, from the perspective of the person asking for consent or giving consent in this study in particular? Um, or both? Well, let me say that um, we think about both, and part of the value in this approach is that when we keep it, just thinking about persons and situations, we get more opportunities for action and intervention. Um, and so the ecological model that Betsy brought up at the very beginning really takes in all these different level of factors, and lots of great work has been done to try to be sort of exhaustive in that way, but part of what we bring to the table is being able to zoom in um, and sort of get to places where we might be able to, with relative ease, intervene. Um, definitely think about what's going on in the head of both gender normatively the male and the female, because there are, like, it's just important for figuring out how they're understanding the situation, same difference, et cetera. Um, okay, so um, what I want to highlight about this process by which we come to understand an idea, and in this case, consent is a value, that you might be getting the sense that this is going to differ across contexts, right? So um, while probably many people in this room already think about consent as a value, we also have high prevalence rates of sexual assault on campus, suggesting that not everybody does, right? So different spaces might um, have this idea of consent as a value to different degrees. Um, and so we did a uh, intervention at Princeton um, studying eating clubs in order to understand this better. Um, and so let me just tell you a little bit about eating clubs at Princeton. Um, in case you're not familiar, they are similar to fraternities or final clubs um, in that they're a social group uh, that is important for social and partying culture. Um, but at um, Princeton, these groups are co-ed, um, and they're quite large, and about 80, 70 to 80 per students are in them. Um, so that's different from final clubs here, which I think is more like 10 to 15 percent. Um, they throw weekly parties. Uh, we knew that this was an important context for us to focus on because in the campus climate survey at Princeton, among students who were sexually assaulted, they said that 50% uh, of them, or 48% of them, said that they met their assailant at an eating club for the first time. We knew this was a really important place for us to, um, to go. Um, and shortly after I got to Princeton, um, we learned, um, we, so sorry, let me say that we worked with two different eating clubs in our study. And, um, the important difference that I want to highlight for you for these two clubs is that one of them instituted a consent pledge. That's what that means, is that when you go into a party at this club, there's a long street at Princeton where all the clubs are. At this club, when you go in, you show your Princeton ID, 
that you do everywhere and here at this club, you also read a definition of consent out loud before you enter the party. If you won't do it, you can't go. It's a mandatory practice. Um, the students initiated this themselves. They wrote the definition of consent themselves. Um, and so this is a practice that they instituted about a year, or I guess two or three years ago now. Um, and it's um, quite interesting thing that they did. Um, and so we also did the same study that I'll tell you about um, at another club where they hadn't done anything like this. They just did the mandatory sort of sexual assault trainings that Princeton provides. But these are the two different contexts that we'll be working in. And um, reading the room, I think that you guys have the intuition that we do that um, one club is signaling that maybe more people think about consent as a value, right? Mm -hmm. So this led us to this question, does this consent pledge constitute a practice that makes students think more about consent as a value? Um, so what we're starting to get at here is that when people think about consent as a value, it not only changes the language that they use to talk about it, but also the language that they might be receptive to. So now we think about interventions, right? The language that we use to talk about consent with students might be different depending on sort of where they are on the spectrum from attitude, from preference to value. Um, yeah. Do you know if people's perceptions of consent along this dimension varies based on like what they think versus what they think other people? Like how big is that distance? I can see consent being one of those things where I might view consent as a preference, but I can recognize in a particular group or a particular situation that other people really see it as a value. And so I'm just curious about that distance and whether or not that distance actually matters when it comes to thinking about interventions and stuff. Yes, absolutely. So part of something being a value is that it's perceived as it's internalized and central to the self. Um, but your question, your larger question about sort of public and private ideas about consent is a fascinating one. I think um, the literature on moralization or how attitudes come to be in the moral domain has focused on vegetarianism and smoking cigarettes. I think that consent is just an amazing, interesting thing to study in this, in this kind of lens. Um, so if we want to try to figure out whether people are thinking about consent as a value, we have to think about what kind of signatures or hallmarks we can look for and how they're thinking about it. Um, so we would know if somebody was thinking about consent as a value, um, if they did things like make universal judgments about consent, like think everybody should be worried about consent. Um, they perceive consent to be a shared idea, that everyone around them has thinks the same way about consent. Um, we might expect them also to be thinking more in black and white terms about consent, so they might be less likely to say that consent is confusing, for example, um, and to feel that um, upholding the value of consent is something that requires action. Um, and so this starts to bring us into the details of our study. Um, we hypothesize that the student group's institutional practice, the consent pledge, will make students perceive consent more like a value, so that um, this practice is bringing people along on this spectrum um, from, added, from preference to value, um, but also that if that's the case, that they'll be much more receptive to messages about consent that have this value language in them. So another way to think about this is that students in a context where the consent pledge is practiced should be more receptive to moral appeals or talking about consent as kind of a moral value. Um, yeah. How are you disentangling the whole correlation versus causation thing? Because I'm assuming that the people in this eating club 
A, we're attracted, like, you know, it's there's a selection process. It's not like people are randomly assigned. And so presumably there was probably a culture that predated this pledge that led them to institute this pledge. Yes, of course. And like, once that pledge is in place, people who find that appealing are even more likely to be drawn to it and everything. Yes, so I'm going to give you the design okay. of the study, and then we can get into that a little bit more detail. But that should help with that a little bit. So um, we did the same study at two different eating clubs on campus. Reminder that the primary difference I want to focus you on between these two clubs is that one of them instituted this consent pledge uh, and the other did not. And uh, going along with that, that means that at the club where the, they started the consent, it was also mandatory, where a student could opt out, that was a new club. And we randomized on the individual level. So this is each person who comes into the party gets assigned to one of two conditions. And those conditions are either that they read the original pledge. So now I also have to show you the wording that the students wrote themselves. Um, so they wrote, um, consent is asking for and receiving affirmation before and while engaging in anyone's personal space or belongings and can be revoked at any time. This is the original pledge. This is what the um, club that started this was using. So our participants are being randomly assigned, uh, assigned either to read the original pledge or to read a moral version of the pledge that uses this kind of values language. Um, if it helps you to think about it, we sometimes also sort of jokingly call this our psychological sledgehammer pledge. And that's because um, we threw everything that we could at this, right? So um, we wrote, Princeton students know for sexual activity to be right, it must be consensual. I stand with my fellow Princeton students, non-consensual sex is not sex, it's violence. I'm responsible for getting and receiving consent, which cannot be given when incapacitated and can be revoked at any time. So we've got lots of stuff in here. We have moral language, we have norms, we have identity. We mention sex explicitly. Um, and so students are receiving to read out loud when they get to this party, either the original version or the moral version. And in both clubs, we did exactly the same thing. We had people at the door randomizing who got what. Um, and then they went to the party, and on their way out, we were there with our surveys to ask them questions to get evidence. <laughs> 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 How did you deal with people arriving in groups? Like most people. Like oh yeah. So um, luckily at these eating clubs, because students have to show their ID, they're just used to the having to line up right when they get there. Um, and like not overhearing each other's. So probably they did overhear each other a little bit. Um, they were just like in diverging lines, but that makes any differences we find between the two sort of conservative. Because people are like, clued into the two positions. Oh, awesome. Great. Yeah. Did you stand inside or outside the club to give them the material? Yes. So to give them the original or the moral version of the pledge, we were standing inside the club. So we were, there was this line and a bouncer, and we had a person right, bef uh, right uh, before that being like, you go this way, you go that way. We, we jokingly called them like the TSA. And then but they could see us on their way in because we were um, set up at a table with um, pizza and our surveys and stuff like that. Um, outside. 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 So there's only one door in and out at the first club that we actually, for, yeah, at both. So sometimes students would be like, oh, can I do it now? And we'd be like, no, 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 you have to go to the party first. <laughs> <laughs> so we were very popular. <laughs> uh, well, our pizza was very popular. So should we get questions for you? Yes, that's a great idea. Thank you. Um, okay, so um, so here are the kinds of questions that we asked students with our survey. Um, we were looking for evidence of people thinking about consent as a value. And so um, 
We wanted to know if people were making universal judgments about consent, and so we asked them, should everyone read the pledge? We wanted to see about their ideas about <coughs> perceived consensus, so seeing percent, consent as a shared idea. Um, and so we asked what percent of your friends appreciate the pledge. Uh, we talked about thinking about values in terms of thinking more in black and white about consent. So we asked, is consent confusing? And we asked, um, in terms of thinking about consent requiring action, how responsible are you for preventing assault? So now I'm going to jump into the data right away. We first show you the responses to should everyone pledge. So here at the first club, this is where they, they came up with the pledge. Uh, we find that when they're exposed to our moral or sledgehammer pledge, um, they are more likely to say that everyone should pledge. Let me orient you to the y-axis here. So perhaps hearteningly, um, students tend to agree uh, to these questions, so we have skewed data. And so what we do is we uh, <coughs> recode their responses. So anything except for the strongest yes is coded as a zero. So what I'm showing here, showing you here is the proportion of people who say highest thing on the scale, absolutely yes. Um, and so at Eating Club 1, we're finding that um, our moral pledge makes more people say absolutely yes, everyone should read the pledge. Um, however, at our second Eating Club, we find that um, this same pledge makes them less likely, or fewer people are saying yes, absolutely everyone should pledge. Here, they seem to respond that way more when we talk about consent is asking, right, that original pledge. And I'm gonna show you the same pattern for all of the following measures. Um, so for perceived consensus, what percent of your friends appreciate the pledge? We get the same overall pattern. Um, we get the same overall pattern for is consent confusing? It's flipped over because now the extreme response is no rather than yes. Um, and the same overall pattern when we think about responsibility for preventing assault. Uh, so taken together, I hope that you're feeling this um, pull of how important these local immediate contexts are for how we talk to students about consent. We're finding that these social and psychological processes um, that are linked to students' identities, their values, um, are interacting with local contexts, right? They alter the way that students are able to hear or receive um, ideas about consent. Um, so um, I, in thinking about how to communicate this, one thing that I was thinking about that you see sometimes like vitamins or advertises like now more absorption, right? <laughs> so to think about when we give messages about consent, who is able to receive it or absorb it, right? It's just as important to think on that side as in terms of just what is in the message, right? Um, so some of the key insights um, from this talk broadly um, and also from that specific study, um, we start at the beginning of the talk, um, are just not to pathologize individuals, but to think about the banality of evil. Right? Rather than thinking about evil people, think about how situations are changing people's behavior. Think locally, uh, so examine the immediate situations in which behavior occurs. And this should apply not just to college campuses, but to any kind of environment that you want to examine and think about. Um, to diagnose, uh, think about the kinds of perceptions and features of the physical environment that might trigger the behavior. So this is like thinking about how something like a locked door might change politeness goals, or something about how thinking about how to get home might change how people interact with people at the party itself. Um, and finally, um, thinking about how similar trainings or messages or appeals might be received differently even among the same seemingly similar subgroups on campus, right? These are about eating clubs at Princeton. It seems like they share quite a lot. Um, but yet this message 
lands differently at the two places. Um, so now I'm just going to put back up our behavioral science model in case you want to ask some questions about these levels um, and say thank you so much to Betsy and our collaborators, Um, 
I'm interested in understanding why one eating club was a little bit more adverse to moral to the moral consent form than the other one, and if there's any defining variables or characteristics that that you can sort of predict why some people would be more understanding of the idea of consent or less willing to um, like use it. Yeah. So um, implementing this pledge mm -hmm. um, prior to us intervening is a big signal from mm -hmm. this one eating club that they share mm -hmm. this value, mm -hmm. um, and so that is really key for understanding the way that mm -hmm. it's being talked about in their mm -hmm. social space and among mm -hmm. peers whose things they really care about. Mm -hmm. So um, that really should have clued us in, <laughs> and it kind of did, right? So we, mm -hmm. we predicted that um, that would that we had a directional prediction for the club where they um, instituted the pledge, right? We thought for sure the moral language would um, mm -hmm. be resonant for them, but we had an open prediction in mm -hmm. the second club because we just weren't sure. Mm -hmm. We didn't have indicators really either way from mm -hmm. them, um, especially because um, it's uncommon for students to institute something like this, so it's mm -hmm. really diagnostic of their mm -hmm. behavior, right? Whereas to not really do anything extra isn't really telling us that mm -hmm. much right now. Um, but it could be that as students develop more student-led initiatives that is more diagnostic to opt out. Mm -hmm. Right, so we can also change and follow that. Uh -huh. But in order to be part of the club that um, shares the, val the value of consent, mm -hmm. there must be like a self-selection process. And yes. are there any characteristics that define <coughs> them? Um, so we, what I would say is that these parties are open. Okay. Um, we were made sure that we were okay. there at nights where anyone could attend. Mm -hmm. Certainly, probably, there's not perfect overlap of who mm -hmm. is at each party, right? Mm -hmm. But trying to understand the role of context is is taking these things into account, right? That's kind of what we mean by context. It's not anything special about the buildings, but who goes there and what values they bring and okay. stuff like that. Sure, just very quick, um, and fair disclosure, I work with the It's On, uh, it's on Us folks uh, at the Council on Women and Girls. But if you go back to the, your next slide, or where you talk about um, the, the last one, about uh, the message being that, you know, the very last slide? Sorry. Sorry. You mean this? Yes. Uh, that the banality of evil belongs to the person in the situation. That is a really tough message to sell with policy and political messaging. Whereas I think the idea that bystanders could do something gives agency to a broader number of people. It may be based on a false model, as you have articulated beautifully here. But I think that you know the challenge of bringing the research to the policy to action also depends on what idea you're trying to sell broadly to a community. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, selling people on that idea that we're all one step away from uh, a per being a perpetrator in one way or another, just the same way I think you see in the diversity literature that we're all one step away from, is a very difficult message to sell. So I think how we figure out that we build um, agency and help people to take that on is a real political and policy challenge. Yeah. That's a really interesting parallel you're drawing. First of all, um, I should mention that we aren't trying to push the banality of evil as a catchphrase. <laughs> 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 as a, you know, more internal scholarly discussions. Yes. Um, no, I understand. Big lift. <laughs> but I think it's, that's like a really fascinating parallel because I actually think that the language around implicit bias has done precisely this in the diversity training literature. It, it basically says we are all subject to these um, 
uh, these culturally, you know, learned biases. So we're all just one step away, right? And I think that actually has a great appeal and almost a double-sided and dangerous appeal because it also exonerates, right? That, you know, we're all doing this. We all have these biases inside of us. So I actually think that those messages about you know, we're all subject to these pressures, a lot of them are cultural and situational, are actually quite popular, but they also have an outside, yeah, right? So because we do both want to talk about personal responsibility, but also the ways in which we are subject to um, our cultural times, our situational pressures. So um, I think it's a, it's a line to walk in both areas, and we've seen examples on, on either side. Wow, that's really wonderful. Please join me. In